It was a very bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo, thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. Welcome into the latest edition of the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Perry, and Eric Scopel is with me as always. And before we begin today's show, we just want to acknowledge that right now in this country and now around the world, there are a lot of people that are in pain, that are angry, that are upset, that are tired of fighting for inequality uh, that they're dealing with and they want to be treated equally. And there's a lot of people right now that are arguing against one another. And it's a tough time to be um, an American in this country. And it's an even equal or tougher time to be an African American in this country uh, or another minority in this country because of what's going on around the world. And I think, Hopefully, I think everyone could in, be in agreement that we all want to be treated fairly and we all want to be treated the same and that eventually we as a country will find our way through this and change will happen and we will get back to a more peaceful and a more loving time. Just to echo what Matt said, I'm in a complete agreement, obviously. It's been a really difficult week or so to watch what's unfolded in this country. And I think you can't help but be really saddened by what is going on with, you know, as a white male, I'm not subject to a lot of what is going on um, ever. I don't have those fears. I don't walk out of my house ever and, and really feel much fear for my personal safety. So this, this is an opportunity, I think, just to extend love, to listen to you know, people of other races and understand what is going on, try to understand their point of view, try to see that what's going on is wrong. I think that part is one that needs to be just acknowledged by everybody. Um, nobody would want to be treated the way people of African-American descent have been treated in this country, especially currently by police. And I know that's not just currently, that's been, um, unfortunately, something that's taken place for, for decades and decades and basically since a lot of them were brought here through slavery. So not a lot, you know, this is something that is systemic in this country. And I think it, this is, it feels like a time for some change to be made. It has to be made. It's been way too long. So support, you know, just support each other, I think, is the thing we need to do right now and, and to be open and to listen. Um, and if there are ways that we can help, be willing to be helpful. And if you ever see somebody in a spot where I don't even, I mean, it doesn't specifically have to be with a police officer where somebody looks like they're in danger and again it doesn't even have to be necessarily an african-american person but just in general if you ever see somebody in danger seek out ways to help don't don't be silent this is not the time for that so i think these are things that we need to say in this podcast just because it needs to be said and it needs to be communicated to those listening this can be divisive i know there are people that probably want to hear us stick to sports and we would love to stick to sports when there weren't these sort of issues that need to be addressed um, but unfortunately this needs to be addressed in this country right now and uh, we're not going to start this podcast without doing that now let's actually get into um, the mailbag, and we've we've had a little bit of an adjustment to the process for this. Um, 
Typically, it's send us your questions and we will provide our answers. And on today's show and the days leading up to it, we decided we still took your question. We still took your input. Your input was is still the driver of this show, but we flipped it from asking a question to a different style uh, of content that we're going to discuss on the show. Yeah, so we're yeah we're asking for takes, and that can I know take is kind of an interesting term these days because it's become I think really built up, especially on those early morning shows on like ESPN and Fox Sports. But um, this is just an opinion that that Oregon fans have had that they know might be a little bit a little divisive, a little polarizing, um, and we're going to kind of take our best shot at answering it. The first three questions come Eric, from... these are hot takes. We, we want to discuss hot Okay, takes. you're right. You're right. These are, some of these are particularly hot takes. Some of them are less hot takes. Um, but uh, that was what we were looking for and we're asking. And if this works out, we'd love to continue doing this going forward. The first three questions are from social media, from Twitter. The last three questions are from a uh, from the Duck Territory message board um, where we asked the same question just for people to throw out things over the years that they know they felt that they didn't know if Oregon fans would necessarily agree with. So we're going to do our best to assess these takes, starting with the first question or first take, I should say, from Duck in Quack Rock. I don't know how hot take this is, but Oregon ends up with zero five stars in the 2021 class, but still finishes with a top 10 class. As Matt said, these are hot takes. And the first take was one that was admittedly not a very hot take by the own person <laughs> himself. But um, I, I think let's start here, Matt. Uh, Probably likely Oregon doesn't land a five-star based upon how things are projected right now. Of course, they're subject to change on who's actually a five-star, and there are certainly recruits Oregon is in on and has a good shot, shot at landing that right. are uh, could get there. But you think it's reasonable to say right now Oregon doesn't get a five-star, and then currently Oregon is ranked 10th nationally. Do you think that's possible without a five-star recruit? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the list of five-stars, and let's start at the bottom and work our way up. Uh, of the players that Oregon has interest in, and then it's also reciprocating, right? Like, they could have interest yeah. in everybody, but as much as they want to have these guys, some of them have to reciprocate the interest. And the the, the lowest five-star, as crazy as that sounds, and as, you know, backwards that sounds, uh, that's out there, it's considering Oregon is Mason Smith, a five-star defensive tackle, the 20th best player in the country, Probably not going to sign with Oregon. And then you have to go up a little bit. Tristan Lay kind of was, not really anymore. Um, Emeka Ibuka has eliminated Oregon from his list. Uh, you've also got the top two players in the country, JT Tuamalu and Corey Foreman. Um, Oregon is probably third or second for either of those schools at best. They're definitely not first. Um, I, I would argue that Oregon probably will not sign a five-star in this class. And if they do sign one, if Oregon does find a way to land a five-star recruit, it's going to be because it's going to be because of a, a player who's currently a four-star elevates himself into that five-star status. I, I think Oregon is certainly in a really good position for Troy Franklin, and he's literally two spots away from becoming a five-star recruit. There's a ton of interest with Dante Thornton, and he's the 47th best player in the country, you know, quite a bit further down from where uh, Troy Franklin is at, but it's not inconceivable to see a guy in the 40s jump on into the into the 30s from a recruiting standpoint. So 
Oregon's got a good, I would say Oregon's the leader for both of those players and it wouldn't be the biggest surprise if either of them turns into a five-star recruit. But right now, uh, I would say no. Now that doesn't mean they're not going to sign a top 10 recruiting class because right now already they are 10th in the country and you look at some of the top 100 recruits that are seriously looking at Oregon. We mentioned Franklin. We may, we mentioned, uh, Thornton, and you continue to go down the list a little bit, and you find a guy like Kingsley Suomatia, an offensive tackle, Bryce Foster, a four-star offensive guard, Sierra Wright, a cornerback that's a four-star player. Um, you you continue to go down. They've already got a commitment from Bram Walden. Uh, Ty Thompson is another four-star commit that's a top 100 player. Brock Bowers is a top 100 recruit that's considering Oregon. Uh, Ducks are probably second in his commitment list. So Oregon's doing a really good job. And, and while they may not have any five-star commits in this class, there's a, a high probability that like 80% or higher of this class will be four-star recruits, which is extremely impressive. All right. I don't disagree with you, Matt. I, I, I think that's actually – I know he said it wasn't a hot take, but I, I think that's a pretty reasonable – It is really probable. Yeah, I think it's a pretty reasonable expectation, actually, that Oregon ends up with a top 10 class and doesn't have a five star. Um, and I think you did a good job of laying out the way that maybe they do get that five star is by a player boosting their recruiting ranking. Um, second question from at bbat96. Watched a replay of the 2012 Rose Bowl the other day. Which of those starting players would start on today's Ducks team, in your opinion? The difference in O-line talent these days is especially notable to me. Uh, one thing I will say is in a time where there's no sports, it's, I've been on YouTube almost every night rewatching a game from early on in the 2010s. They have pretty much the whole catalog of like 2010, 2011, 12, 13, 14, and probably getting even into the 15 and 16 season, which I don't know if you really want to watch much from 2016, but, um, it's your time. You can deal with it as you like, but I do recommend if, if you're an Oregon fan kind of wanting to scratch that itch, um, go back and, and watch these games. It's been really fun remembering these teams and, and kind of remembering how I remember players and then seeing them. And, and man, one thing that stood out is Anthony Thomas is incredibly explosive. I don't know how I was lost on me, how fun he was to watch. But um, I went ahead and looked through the roster. And I will say, I made the mistake before I did this of, uh, of looking at the 2012 team, which I think is the best Oregon team probably in program history. This is the 2012 Rose Bowl, which is the 2011 season. So um, a little bit different roster. The quarterback in 2012, Season was Marcus Mariota in 2011. It's Darren Thomas, so forth and so forth. But um, in terms of players on that roster that I think would start today, uh, Darren Thomas at quarterback, to me, would probably get the nod over a Tyler Shuck based purely on experience. Um, going into the 2011 season, Thomas had just led Oregon to a national championship. Obviously, Thomas left you know a year early, and that was in part because of how good uh, number eight was looking as a practice player. But I, I think Thomas... In the 2011 season, if Shuck was in the current circumstance and Thomas is where he, where he was at at that point, I'd give the nod there. I don't think there's any question about running back. Um, Michael James would undoubtedly be the starting running back if he was at Oregon this year, probably almost every year over the last 10 years. That would be the case, I would argue. Um, wide receiver, I think Josh Huff would be, I don't know if the best receiver on this upcoming year's team, but certainly would start at outside receiver. I think he's, he proved that as a, one of the more explosive Oregon wide receivers of the last decade paved out at least a small short-term NFL career. I think tight end is one where on paper, at least I would lean towards the 2011 team 
David Paulson was a starter. They also had Colt Laerla um, on that roster. Those are two guys who clearly um, were talented players. Paulson played in the NFL for a little bit. Laerla, everybody knows how talented he was. If he would have been able to get his head on straight. On the offensive line, um, I think Coronas Grasso is an obvious one. I think maybe Carson York, who started at left guard. Other than that, the original, the, the, the person who asked the question is spot on here because you had Nick Cody at right tackle, Mark Asper at right guard. I think Asper did at least get a chance in the NFL at one point. Grasso at center, left guard was Carson York, left tackle was Darian Weems. I don't think you could really, uh, find a scenario where you Jake would go. Fisher. Yeah, Jake Fisher the next season, which is why when I was doing this, it was funny. When I was doing this thinking it was a 2012 season, you had a lot of better players that were available, but um, Fisher was not Fisher a starter. Fisher played as a true freshman. He did, but he didn't start on uh, on this That's team based on the depth chart I'm looking at here. But Fisher, I had when I had previously done this, I had Fisher over Jake Fisher. Um, and I also had Kyle Long, who was a left guard in 2012, over um, whoever it is who's this year's left guard. But that's where I kind of stand there. And then on defense... A little bit more difficult. Um, I think a guy like Deion Jordan would certainly have a good chance to start um, at maybe at that stud linebacker. I think actually that'd be a perfect role for someone like him. So I think he's a starter. I think Taylor Hart would certainly challenge an Austin Fowlu to start there. He was a really really productive player at Oregon at linebacker. You had a bunch of talented players here. Um, Kiko Alonso was a backup this year. Michael Clay was a starter. I think between those two, probably one maybe both of those guys gets a chance to start. Um, in the secondary, talented group, young group, though. Um, you had Ifo, who was a freshman, a true freshman. You had Terrence Mitchell, who was a redshirt freshman who started. Um, I think it's hard for me to see either of those players as freshmen starting over the senior corners that we have currently at Oregon. Um, and then at, at safety, maybe Boyette gets the look. Probably Boyette gets a look over a Nick Pickett or a Brady Breeze, but I don't know if Eddie Pleasant does. Matt, do you have any spots there that you really disagree or any other players that you think um, would, would would likely start this year if they I, were I on said, the I said 13 players from this group would probably okay. start um, for the 2020 football team. Now, some of them are because we just don't know who what the talent that Oregon has at the position. Like Sure. I picked Darren Thomas, and that feels very easy to to, to say that Ta- Darren Thomas would, would start over Tyler Shuck. But who's to say that Tyler Shuck doesn't come out and all of a sudden is gangbusters and exactly. has a huge year, and it's become it, it's evident that he is just as good, if not better, than Darren Thomas. And I, I mean, and that's kind of that is kind of a hot takeish statement because I think you could say that Darren Thomas is arguably one of the five to seven best quarterbacks that have played at Oregon. Um, in program history, maybe maybe top ten, uh, but that's kind of what's expected of Tyler Shuck because he was the elite eleven quarterback, four star, one of the best at his position. Um, I would say Josh Huff would would be a guy that would probably start at receiver for Oregon right now, but who's to say? I mean, I wouldn't put him over Jalen Red. I wouldn't put him over um, Johnny Johnson right now. Maybe, probably Johnny Johnson. I probably would put him with Johnny Johnson. Um, but there's the potential that a Brian Addison or a Devin Williams, uh, or, or somebody else on the offense can have a similar type of season that Josh Huff has. Micah Pittman, uh, those two players, I think Pittman and, and Huff are very similar players. Um, I completely agree with you at tight end. I, and it's not a slouch to any of the guys currently on the roster, but I mean, you just look at this group of, Colt Laerla, you know, if he didn't have the off-field issues, he would have been a 
probably still playing in the NFL right now. Um, David Paulson, I believe he won a Super Bowl with the Steelers eventually. Um, he was a guy that was in the league for a little bit. Defensively, Deion Jordan, I don't care who Oregon has. I mean, Kayvon Thibodeau is about is on pace to have a similar type career arc for Deion Jordan. Um, because remember, Deion Jordan was the third pick in the NFL draft. Sure you know, was. We're, we're not slouching here. I mean, we've talked a lot about Kayvon being number one potential player. Deion was almost there. Deion Jordan. So, I mean, the very similar players, uh, not similar players, but similar draft profile, if you will. Um, linebackers, I, I think Oregon's linebackers in, in 2011 were significant. I mean, Josh Cadu is an NFL player, really good football player. Michael Clay would have been if he was literally two inches taller. Um, he was just too small. But from a collegiate standpoint, there's not a player on Oregon's roster right now that's as good as Michael Clay, in my mind. Um, Kiko Alonso played in the NFL, still plays in the NFL. Uh, very, well. very, very good football player for Oregon there. So I, I think Oregon's linebackers in 2011 were outstanding. I mean, Posico Lacumbo was a guy that played a lot um, that season. I think Oregon's secondary this year is probably better than the 2011 version. I had Anthony Gilden as a senior, Ifo backing him up. You had Eddie Pleasant as a senior, Brian Jackson, Eric Dargan kind of sharing that role behind him. John Boyette was a junior, was an, a fantastic player. Avery Patterson was a very good player behind him as well. And then you had Terrence Mitchell, Troy Hill, and Dior Mathis all playing at that other cornerback spot. And I, I think Oregon's corners stack up just as good, if not better, than those guys. Um, Ifo hadn't become Ifo yet at that point, yeah, but right. I, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think I think there's a couple spots that could that could play on this year's team. I think there's a couple guys that could easily go and take a, a, a key player from that 2011 team and take their spot as well. I think a fun one just to think about is a John Boyette versus Brady Breeze kind of comparison, you know, yeah. just in terms of those guys play a little similar. Uh, Breeze has commented in the past that Boyette was one of his favorite players growing up when he was going to games at Otson. Um, Boyette was a fantastic player and, and obviously had a larger role than Breeze has had to his senior season so far in terms of Boyette was a really big part of the defense as a redshirt freshman, sophomore, and all the way through. Um but those guys were those guys were comparable and kind of interesting to match up next to each other. And Eddie Pleasant, I know I kind of you made a good point of acknowledging him. He was a really really good safety at Oregon, and uh, and I think Oregon has really really good talent in its secondary right now. But you look at the players that were on that 2011 defense, and a lot of these guys played in the NFL or still play in the NFL. I mean, Terrence Mitchell and Troy Hill are still NFL corners. I know they started at times in the past. I don't know what the future holds there, but. You know, and Boyette and Jackson and uh, Pleasant were all players that that were drafted. So, um, a really talented 2011 team for sure. Um, really good question. Although, again, it wasn't a take, so we're kind of bending the rules to include it. But I thought it was a good enough uh, discussion topic to to kind of run into. So, third question. And I'm going to hand this one off to Matt from at Two TV Sports. Oregon men's basketball is the most underrated basketball program in the NCAA. Matt, Ooh. take it away. Um, that feels a little hot takeish, um, but at the same time, also kind of correct. I think it's both, to be honest, to cheat. Just because every year, you know, like right now, Oregon isn't being deemed the 
Pac-12 favorite by some of the national media members. Uh, a lot of that is going to Arizona State. A lot of that is going to a program like UCLA, another another team that had a lot of this discussion before one of their players went pro was Colorado because they returned and it's and it's all based on because they returned everybody and I and or majority of their team and Oregon loses their best player they're all American and Peyton Pritchard they also lose Anthony Mathis and they also lose uh, Shakur Houston but everybody else from that group is back and they're all upperclassmen or at least sophomores uh, they added a, a, a four star point guard and. And then, you know, Oregon's kind of being pegged as the third, fourth, you know, sometimes even the fifth or, or the sixth best team in, in the conference. And yet every year around February and then into March, it's, oh, well, here's Dan Altman again. You know, how'd they do that? Had, had, had Oregon get to, to landing a top two seed in the conference or a top three seed in the conference or, or winning the conference and then going winning the conference tournament. And then they're significantly always the last team alive. In the NCAA tournament, it was that way last season, uh, the 2018-2019 season. It was that way when they went to the Final Four. It was that way the year before that in 2016, when 16-17, when they went to the Elite Eight. Uh, excuse me, 15-16, when they went to the Elite Eight. It was that way uh, a couple years earlier when they made the Sweet 16. And they lost to Louisville. They were the last Pac-12 team to survive. So it's a pretty regular occurrence that Oregon basketball, A, far out, uh, outperforms their preseason expectation, and B, is usually the last team in the Pac-12 to still be playing in the NCAA tournament. So I would side more so that being yes than that being a crazy hot take. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Autzen Audibles podcast. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving nonstop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you'll need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. All right, welcome back to the Yachts and Audibles podcast. Typically, it's a mailbag. We answer your questions, but uh, this is kind of your hot takes. So let's continue with hot takes. Yeah, these final three, second half of the show, are from the Duck Territory message board thread. This one from Waldo Duck 81 Kenny Wheaton should have run out of bounds. Um, kind of a funny one, you know, just to reflect on how different do we look back at that play and that, and hit him as a player, if he does do what I guess maybe would have been the smart thing, which is go out of bounds in terms of stopping the clock and then you could kneel and avoid any possible risk of fumbling it. 
at the same time, we've all watched this play hundreds of times. If you've been to an Oregon game at Otson and you were there, you know, within 10 minutes of kickoff, you've seen this play before. He didn't have a whole lot to worry about from, from my memory of the play. Um, it's not, I don't think he should have gone out of bounds. I think he had a pretty clear angle to the end zone and scoring put them up by 11 points with not a lot of time remaining. So, um, should he have gone out of bounds? Like maybe, maybe that would have been an interesting, argument at the time and maybe that was something people were talking about but I don't know if you agree with this one Matt but I I think Kenny Wheaton scoring a touchdown was really important and I think the whole memory of that 94 season where they go and they play in the Rose Bowl and I just had to look this up earlier we should know like I think I had in my head thought this game was played like right before the Rose Bowl and it clinched it It, this was like six weeks prior Um, Oregon won this game and it was five and three after the win so a little bit different memory here obviously I was five years old in 94 but uh I just think that this play would have been so much different. The way we look at that 94 season would have been so much different if Kenny Rutten had run out of bounds. Matt, do you, do you think he should have run out of bounds? Or are you okay with, with how things played out? I'm totally okay with how things played out. I think this is, this is the hottest hot take we've, we've, we've dealt with so far, but I will also say they're pretty tame before this, but this is making up for a lot of it. I mean, this is like the signature play for Oregon football. This is like the most iconic moment in sport for the football <laughs> program. And you want to take it away by saying he should have ran out of bounds? Um, I have no problem with how the game ended, and I can't understand. I can't wrap my mind around the idea that Kenny Wheaton runs out of bounds when he intercepts the, the pass because it was it was literally make one or two guys miss and he's gone. Yeah, that was a uh, that would be a sliding doors moment for Oregon football. I, I don't even know if the program is the same if he takes a step out of bounds or falls down because I guess technically that would have been the same thing. So um, interesting one from Alden. And, and yeah. what if he fumbled yeah. and UW gets it back and then they score on the next possession? Yeah, well, I think that's the concept of stepping out of bounds is you avoid that possibility. But we're we're in agreement here. I don't. <laughs> I watch. What if they step out of bounds and Oregon fumbles like they did against uh, Stanford but see Jeffrey Dell? <laughs> yeah, well, and that's a total sliding doors moment. And then Oregon probably is a perennial two-win team for the next 25 years. And <laughs> we're, we might not even have this podcast because there might not be enough of a following for the program. And that's obviously <laughs> really hot take right there. But uh, I, I like the fact that while the Duck was willing to go out on a limb here, this next question I think does the same sort of thing, although I, I agree with this take a lot more from Son of a Duck. Oh, here's a hot take. Health, speaking, of course, of with Mark Helfrich, Helfrich was a substantially better offensive coach than anything we've had since, like by a country mile. It was defense, recruiting, and player buy-in that did him in. I don't disagree, actually. Um, I'm excluding Joe Moorhead because I have a sense that Moorhead will be as good, if not better, than what Helfrich was at Oregon. But I do think it needs to be stated that, like, Helfrich was not a bad offensive coach. He was not a no. bad offensive coordinator. That's why he still has a job in the NFL as an offensive coordinator. Um, and I think Southern Reductive did a good job of pointing out that it was defense, recruiting, and player buy-in. That's, that is what happened. I mean, the program kind of got complacent. They reached those those huge highs of playing for national championships and winning Heismans, and I don't think – Helfrich really was the right guy to continue that momentum. I don't think he had that sort of mentality and personality to really, you know, further that need to continue wanting to work towards more. I'm not saying necessarily that the players got lazy on him, but I do think that was part of it. So I don't think it was a offensive coaching perspective. I don't think the X's and O's were a problem for Oregon offensively. You talk about some of those Oregon offenses under Helfrich, like some really, really good offensive teams. Um, so I'm in agreement here. Matt, where, where do you stand on this one? I agree. And, and it's, it's 
we can't count Moorhead into this. Um, but based off of what we saw with Marcus Arroyo as the offensive coordinator, and then we know that when Taggart was here, that Taggart was the guy calling the plays. And his offense, while it was explosive, did not have any of the creativity that Mark Helfert showed while he was head coach at Oregon. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, well, yeah, and, and you're right too, in which, um, and the poster is right as well, that what did Oregon in under Helfrich wasn't their offense. It was the lack of skill development. It was the lack of recruiting and the lack of um, buy-in from the players. He didn't have the kind of the same uh, pull or juice that Chip had, you know, the year, you know, the years before him. Um, it wasn't that he wasn't a good X's and O's coach because I think, I think if, if you remember right, that from a scheme perspective, 2016, Oregon still had one of the best offenses in the country and there weren't very many games in which, uh, Oregon got blown out in, in, in 2016. I mean, obviously there's the, the UW game, um, but for the most part, they weren't necessarily blown out in every single game. You know, their offense was able to keep them in it. It was the decision to ultimately what did Helfrich in was when Nick Aliotti retired, he didn't, he promoted Don Pelham from linebackers coach to defensive coordinator. And quite honestly, that probably was the first big mistake that he made because no one was clamoring to come hire Don Pelham away from the University of Oregon as a linebackers coach to turn him into their defensive coordinator. Um, you know, Don Pelham isn't the defensive coordinator at UCLA right now when he's working under Chip Kelly. He's the linebackers coach. Uh, and, and it obviously did not work year one. And they were able to come to an agreement or year two. They were able to come to an agreement and they went out and they hired Brady Hoke. And that was just a disaster of, of a coaching hire. And somehow they, they still kept Don Pelham on, which kind of created really just, I, I think, some awkwardness within the program, which I'm sure fed into the players. Uh, yeah. Wait, this this guy isn't good enough to be the defensive coordinator, but he's still going to be here to be the linebackers coach. It just seems weird. Um, and and they, I, I think that decision, when Nick Galliotti retired, there should have been some kind of, this is the, the opportunity to kind of, Create your own stamp, create your own image on the program, go find somebody from outside the program to, to bring their personal spin to it. And the person that he eventually settled on like two years later in Brady Hoke was just a, was just a disaster of a coaching hire. One of our colleagues, Kevin Wade actually posted on in this thread about hot takes and his, one of his suggestions or one of his hot takes was that if Oregon had hired Justin Wilcox instead of Don Pelham, they would have both won the national championship in 2014, which was Pelham's first year as coordinator. Um, and he suggested that Wilcox would still would be Oregon's head coach right now instead of Mario Cristobal. So I guess you kind of. I don't know if, I don't know if they'd win the national championship because X's knows all you want. Um, it's not. They didn't lose the national championship because of scheme. They didn't have the players defensively to to withstand the gauntlet of 60 plus rushing attempts by a bigger, more physical Ohio State offense. Um, and quite honestly, the offense played a part in them losing that game as well, which had nothing to do with Don Pelham. 
you know, we, we know of Charles Nelson, we know of Dwayne Stanford dropping wide open passes that could have both resulted in touchdowns that would have put Oregon up by two, two or more scores in that game over Ohio State early on, which would have then forced them to not be able to run the football like they did and wear down Oregon. But I do agree with the fact that if Helfrich had hired Justin Wilcox, I think Helfrich would still be the head coach and Justin Wilcox would be still the defensive coordinator and we would be approaching the coach and waiting type scenario. So there you go, Kevin. Sorry, Matt does not give you the thumbs up on both parts of your... <laughs> in fact, kind of gives you... I though, that Wilcox would be here and, and would be the future head coach at Oregon. Yeah, he gives you kind of half credit for the second part yeah. of your of your thought. So uh, I'm going to give... Kevin gets like a quarter thumbs up. It's like kind of like a weird angled thumb to the side. It's kind of like you're going hitchhiking, but not quite. All right. Um, the last one from Arcadian Traverse. And this is one that's going to be interesting here, and, I, and this is a little bit longer, so it's going to take a second to read, but I, I think this will be interesting for, I want to hear what Matt's perspective on this is. I find two of the Otson game day traditions completely corny. One is probably less controversial. The Matt Carney song at the first quarter break, I think the song would be better following the game as fans are leaving, sort of like Sweet Home Chicago after the Cubs win at Wrigley. Second part, the other is one I know will definitely bring down the down votes. The duck on the motorcycle entrance. I love Gary Zimmerman. I love the ducks, but no. the mo- but the motorcycle just doesn't do it for me. Part of it is that the motorcycle doesn't have enough run- runway, and so it's slowing down just as soon as it is accelerated. Part of that is so disparate in movement relative to the players running out. Part of that is just seems so incongruous with all the other Oregon ducks, with, with all things Oregon and ducks. I love to have something unique instead of just. The standard tunnel run, but for me, the motorcycle ain't it. Matt, I uh, could tell by how you responded to the motorcycle part that you're not on board there. What's your, what's your response to that? You're 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 into it. I I take it. I like the motorcycle entrance with with the duck. Now, if we want to get crazy and we want to soup it up, let's do it. I'm all for that. I mean, let's get the duck on some kind of wagon standing up while he's being pulled with the flag in his hands going out of the tunnel. I mean, that would be badass. Um, if you want to soup up the 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 odds and tunnel with the motorcycle and do something crazy even more out there, I'm for it. But a removing Gary Zimmerman and removing the motorcycle? No, I, I'm not. I, that's a hot take. I'm not Ooh. gonna be. I'm not gonna get behind that. The first part, the Matt Kearney song, be, uh, coming home to Oregon. When does that play? Typically, like for, between the first and second quarter, right? Yes, yeah, that's when it's played now. Um, I'm in agreement with this. And yeah, me too. I, I'll say this because I know you were there, and maybe you can help explain to the listener the scene of just how awesome it was to just consume. We were both at Washington State when it was the 2018 season. Game day was there, and Orkin played awful. It was bad. The week after they beat Washington – and the Cougars upset the Ducks, and then they played their version of I'm Coming Home. It's a very similar song, very similar genre of of, of, of a song. They played it, and they play it every, every game after a victory. And it's kind of like a celebration of the game being over, and, and you're with your friends, and some of you have come back to school where you went, uh, your childhood memories, what have you. And it, it, that watching the Cougar fans 
celebrate on the field, celebrate in the stands, and then that song come on, you know, three or four or five minutes after the game was over, and seeing the entire stadium just kind of sing along with it was pretty awesome, and it kind of created a very cool environment. I think I'm in complete agreement with you in that you're right. The Washington State moment was that that was significant, and I felt that. And I, and I think the more I think about the Matt Kearney song, I kind of think is that maybe better before the game starts even, and you find another song for post game because the Matt Kearney song is kind of about like coming to a place that's of, of of importance, of a place that you have fond memories of, which is attending a football game. I feel like that's a good way to welcome you to a game. Um, as opposed to necessarily send you off, which is maybe why they play it early. But I, I'm in agreement that I think it would be cool to have some sort of tradition post-game in terms of music, and maybe it's not the song. Maybe it is the song. Um, I can go either way on that. But I, I, I do think I, – I, I do agree to a certain extent. I think that Matt Kearney song is kind of strange where it's played currently. Um, but I more I just agree with the concept of, like, it would be great to have a song after the game to send fans out. With the motorcycle uh, – I don't have like a real strong opinion against changing it. Like I'm not that, I know it's been going on for a long time. I know people love it and it is a tradition at this point. I, I, I kind of agree with the poster in terms of like, I don't, it's not really an Oregon or a duck thing to have somebody on a motorcycle. I mean, I understand the duck is on the motorcycle, but like it isn't like a, it doesn't like make a lot of like logical sense if you were explaining to somebody who'd never been to Otson, like what they do before the game. You're like, yeah, and then they have a, a duck come out in a motorcycle and they drive them across the field and you go like, Oh, is, do they have motorcycles for every mascot in the country? No, it's just for the duck. And they're kind of like, well, why is it specifically for the duck? So I get that part of it. I do think Matt is, I, I'm, I'm with you in terms of, and I don't have an answer. I'm with you in terms of like, if you could find a better way to do this, I would be so on board. Cause I do think it is cool to make the duck, the focal point the, the mascot um, puddles, the focal point of whatever that, pregame procession with the players I, I think that's important I think that needs to be done but maybe this is one for the listeners to brainstorm we can keep brainstorming as well what would be a better way to bring the duck onto the field than just the the, the motorcycle and, and I, I don't know if other fans dislike it at all and, and if maybe this is not a problem that you know this is there's not a problem so there doesn't need to be a solution kind of thing but I'm certainly open to, to finding more creative ways to to present the duck before the game starts I mean they're I go back to like the Phoenix Suns gorilla that they, that they have for a while. He always, and I understand basketball is different than football, but he would always kind of like have some kind of crazy entrance into the right. arena, uh, just before they introduced players. And oftentimes he would like propel down from the rooftop. Maybe, maybe there can be some kind of like zip line or something where like, and this just fits the total duck, like, aura and and reputation of like you kind of put him in like a superman themed oregon duck outfit and you know he zip lines from the top of the the scoreboard down onto the field as the you know and then the team runs out when he when he lands or something like that like that would be crazy that would fit him's like personality i mean that's that's a whole bunch of like logistics that gotta be figured out but i mean i just think there's a ton of ideas that you could come up with where it's crazy and it's unique and you could rotate it and you can change it and throw a whole bunch of different dynamics into it. Um, obviously, uh, he did one time, I think, parachute in to mm-hmm. a football game before. Um, obviously, I, that becomes very expensive if you do that every single game. Um, but maybe you come up with some kind of unique rotation of things that you could do. 
What do you think about a water slide? I was just trying to think of <laughs> something, trying to think of something where he's in water. And I, my initial thought was that you'd like fill the whole surface of the field with water, but then of course the game is delayed by like two hours while you have to <laughs> drain well, all I the mean, water. you could do a slip and slide, like he yeah, could, like that. Yeah, incorporate water. I, mean, I have the I have the image of uh, what is it, Dawson Gerlamo? Um, when he did that, that video of him on the slip and slide out of Oregon with his, with, yes. with his hand up on his head and he's sliding across the floor. Like the duck could do that. That would be hilarious. Yeah. I think this is fun. I think, I think, I think there should be more creativity. And I, I was even, and I know this was not met with as much support by other people, but I was even into the, they played like the purge siren in between, like important third downs or red zone possessions just to kind of help the fans recognize what was going on. Like I'd be even, cool with that maybe not that specific thing but finding some other creative way to just get another staple of, of what the Otson experience is I, I think the Otson experience is pretty great to begin with but I do think there are ways to get creative and kind of mix and match some things um but I'm, I'm fully on board with whatever people wanted to talk about doing because I, I just think there's room for this to be a fun thing uh, not that it isn't already fun but let's find ways to to give make it even a little bit more unique and enjoyable and, and maybe surprise some people with either the entrance or things we do during the game or, or after the game. I don't know. I, I just think the whole concept is kind of fun to talk about. All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Uh, hot take edition? Is that right? Um, Let's call it that. Is that what we're going to do? Um, hot take edition. We'll, we'll see how this is received, and we could do these more often down the road. So thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Fair Scopel, I'm Matt Prame. We'll talk to you soon. See you later, fellas. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean outrageous. Just search The Rest is Football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.